This episode is very similar to one of the movies. I don't think I have to lay that out any more than just to say how similar those two things are. But yeah, I did I see online that the uh, fan community uh, does call that first movie where Nomad has gone before. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Anyway, uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. My name's Matt, as always, coming to you live from Austin. And uh, on the uh, east side of the state from uh, Houston is my brother, Ken. So say hello, Ken. Hailing frequencies are open. They are. And here we are this week talking about uh, the Changeling or Nomad. It should have been called Nomad. I don't know why they called it the Changeling. There's like the briefest of briefest references to the ancient story of a baby who isn't a baby who pretends to be a baby or yeah. something. I wonder if it was like the genesis of the idea. You know, someone came across the mythology said, Ooh, I have an idea, but let's make it a robot. Wait, probe. Interstellar probe that is changed by some encounter, not with a pixie or, you know, something like that, but with, but we won't even have to explain it. It's too complicated. But it comes back different, changed, malevolent. It's funny because it never came up in any of the research I was doing, but I more suspect that it was actually a tacked on thing at the end. Mm-hmm. Could be, could be. It sort of feels that way. You feel like they would have like integrated the story somehow. It's actually... Gives me another thought I'll try and remember later when we actually get into the episode. Before we do, though, we got to talk about the entrance of a uh, of somebody who will become important uh, in the history of Star Trek. But uh, this is his first written episode as a as a writer on the show. Sometimes I don't know what I'm talking about. But yeah, so he's coming in to write his first episode and now will be going on to become uh, very important in the third season of Star Trek. And his name is John Meredith Lu- Lucas. Some quick background on this guy. Uh, His father was a silent film star, writer, director named Wilfred Lucas. His mother was uh, Bess Meredith. She was both an actress and a writer. Uh, When Wilfred Lucas died, Bess marries Academy Award-winning director Michael Kurtz. He uh, made a little movie called Casablanca you might have heard of. Uh, Anyway, he adopted young John and uh, got him... It got him into uh, show business. So it was all thanks to that guy that becomes who he becomes. I'm sure having the uh, father who, of the director of Casablanca is a pretty good in into Hollywood, which is uh, exactly what it was. They were like, oh, he's not going to do anything else really, so we'll put him into show business. It'll be fine that way. He started doing some minor jobs in show business, working you know $50 a week as a junior writer. But the big break... For Lucas came when, uh, with his friendship with Hal Wallace, 
who had uh, also produced many of Michael Kurtz's movies, including Casablanca, Captain Blood, The Adventures of Robin Hood. Again, all movies that uh, if you know anything about movies of the 40s and 50s, you've definitely heard of those movies. So uh, these two would get together. They'd, they'd watch old movies and talk about them. And so the producer felt like Lucas, you know, really had a handle on what it took to make a good movie and uh, ended up uh, writing a noir film for a movie for Charlton Heston called Dark City, which was released by Paramount, two very positive notices. At this point, he writes an outlet lad western and, uh, you know, goes on to get a very good, serious career uh, writing movies. He then moves to TV. He does some dragnet, uh, does a movie called, or does a TV show called Medic. And it's on Medic when he's writing for Scream Gems. Ah, uh-huh, well, here we go. So uh, Luke, Lucas first learned of Gene Roddenberry when they both worked at Screen Gems on the syndicated TV series Whiplash, which starred Peter Graves, <laughs> who, of course, was also working on the Desilu Mission Impossible as well. He goes, spends some, Lucas goes, spends some times overseas. He comes back, and now, you know, his, ooh, he went and worked overseas. He's a very important guy. So he comes back and works on, you know, Zorro, and works on Alfred Hitchcock Presents, then goes on to work on Ben Casey, which, you know, he was going to be a doctor early in his life. So he's like, so I know something about this. Let's go do Ben Casey. And then uh, does some little work on The Fugitive as well. His parking space at Desilu was just happened to be outside the offices of one Gene Kuhn, who used to keep his window open because he used to chain smoke so much that he needed to keep the, the, the window open to let the smoke out. And uh, one day he says, hey, uh think you, you could write some science fiction maybe and of course lucas is like i've been dying to write some science fiction and boom that's it so then he comes in and writes this episode called the changeling which brings us to today's episode isn't that nice so the changeling is kind of right in the middle of the work that mark daniels the director did for star trek uh-huh so he had started off, you know, really at the beginning. He did Man Trap. Yep. And um, he'll go on. He did uh, uh, Menagerie. I think he won an award for, for or at least the nomination for Best Dramatic Presentation for Man Trap. Um, he did Court Martial, the very similar kind of courtroom drama-y, um, you know, episode in which uh, we find out there's a commander who's in charge of the records. <laughs> uh, Space Seed. Who mourns for Adonis? Yes. Uh, and then, of course, Changeling. We're about right in the middle. He'll do Mirror Mirror. That's also a big uh, Doomsday Machine, which we've already done because we're in production order. Yep. Um, I-Mud. I uh, Private Little War. Spock's Brain. He'll do an episode of the uh, animated series. But he's done you know, all kinds of other smoke. Gunsmoke. Ben Casey. Uh, you know, Man from Uncle. He'll go on, you know, to do... You know, other big shows like Hogan's Heroes and uh, Doris Day, Barnaby Jones, Kung Fu, Marcus Welby ends up at the end of his career, you know, working with Lucy again on uh, Life with Lucy. You know, he does uh, a few other things. So he's got a, a big storied career and we're right smack in the middle of it. One of the fun things is that we'll actually see his picture in this episode. Because when they go to do the... We will? Yeah, when they show us the picture of Roy Kirk, that's the director. That's him? That's Mark Daniels? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I did not find that. That's interesting. <laughs> 
So Lucas had grown up uh, reading amazing stories, science wonder stories, you know, science fantasy, amazing stories quarterly, all these great pulp novels or pulp, not even that, they're Penny Dreadfuls or, uh, you know, they're mag all these old sci-fi magazines, you know, in the back. So he really wanted to come up with, you know, something that was really cool, like sci-fi that he like something he would read when he was younger. He says of his inspiration for the changeling, I had always been fascinated by the concept of the machine as God. That was what really sparked it for me, the selling point. It was simply a fascinating concept that a machine could, in a real sense, come to life. In the story, it was accidental, but it becomes a very real judgmental being and a threat. Dun, dun, dun. I added the dun, dun, dun. He didn't say that. He cut it. Coon goes to Roddenberry, says, uh, hey, I've met with this guy, Lucas. He's done a bunch of stuff in the past. I'm going to give him uh, a chance to write a show for us. Roddenberry's like, cool, go for it. I trust your judgment at this point. So Coon then leaves for a uh, two-week vacation right here uh, in the middle of March. Roddenberry was manning the fort uh, when Lucas delivered his outline. Robert Justman was the first to respond, saying, I find that many of the philosophical... Hmm. Write that again. I find that many of the pages of philosophical rationalizations and discussions, it reminds me of the weather. Everybody talks about it, but nobody does anything about it, says Robert Justman. We need action. We need emotional conflict, drama, and crises. We are lacking these things so far, and I am only on page 23, he says. Roddenberry was a little less critical. He leaves a note on Kuhn's desk that says, uh, so far I've liked working with this young man, and and uh, have high hopes for further scripts. So in this story, in the original draft of this, the robot ship was, uh, ship was named the Mariner. There actually had been was a series of Mariner probes. Oh, that's well, that's probably really what he was going for then. Let me see that when they sense. were. Well, you look at that, I'll continue on. Mariner suffers serious damage in its programming. It becomes corrupted after colliding with a uh, meteoroid. The Mariner Sorry, program ahead. starts in uh, 1962. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Sorry, this the book here says meteoroid, which I don't, I don't, I thought it was meteorite, which it probably uh, is as well. But meteoroid confused no, me, and so then I said it something would be stupid. A meteoroid because it's in space. It's a meteorite when it hits the Earth. It's a meteor when you see it making a light across the sky. See, folks, aren't you glad you listen to the show? You find out very important things every week. Everyone in the audience is like, dumb, Matt, come on, move on. Okay, well. So unlike in later drafts, uh, the Mariner did not merge and meet with an alien probe. Instead, it made repairs of its own. And because of its corrupted thinking, described by Lucas as brain damage, Mariner, instead of merely seeking out life, begins seeking out perfect life. So we didn't have the collision happen in the original one. Uh, Mariner 1, by the way, sent to Venus. So there is also a weird thing that happens in this uh, in this initial, uh, uh, not draft even, what do you call it, the screen. Oh, Matt, come on. Story outline. Ah, yeah. So there was a weird thing that happened in this story outline where Kirk tells Sulu to put a hydrogen cloud out there, mm -hmm. and then... Kirk's face 
would arrive in the hydrogen cloud so it could talk to the mariner. That's just weird. Also, you can imagine Robert Justman being like, I don't know how you would want to do that on the cheap, but uh, good luck. <laughs> Another significant distance here is, is that uh, Mariner is also now this giant thing, and uh, it sends out this little probe that it is what ends up going to the ship. It wasn't the actual ship itself. It was this silly probe. Also, the crew member whose brain is drained by the probe is not Ohura, but is instead a yeoman Barbara, Barbara Watson, who attracts Mariner's attention uh, by whistling. Also, Scott is not killed as a result of trying to protect the whistling yeoman, but rather in a completely different scene where he is zapped to death when, out of curiosity, he just goes up and touches the probe. Because that sounds like something Scott would totally do. Anyway, you can imagine the changes that actually start getting made here. Um, they send it to NBC. NBC says, is, uh, this outline is theoret theoretically exciting, but in actuality, as it appears on the, on the page, seems to be a great deal of just discussion back and, back and forth, theorizing and moralizing on the point of our crew members. While I think that these are interesting in the body of our stories, it needs to be carried out with more action and adventure as always. Plus, uh, broadcast standards also had to pipe in with their two cents by saying, care should be taken that the reference to Kirk as the creator are in terms of the Mariner's understanding so that the viewer will not misinterpret such references of that of Kirk being a deity. Duh. That's all I have to say about that. Again, sometimes you get NBC notes and you're like, perfect, and sometimes you're like, you're an idiot, but thank you. <laughs> Yeah, especially when, like, the probe doesn't have any kind of Genesis reference to it, right? Right. I mean, later on, they will actually build the Genesis device. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Paramount wasn't like, we just need to make sure that no one mistakes Carol Marcus for a deity. <laughs> <laughs> she is starting Genesis, after just, all. Just be clear on that point. And we get McCoy um, with that. Like, McCoy even makes the, the biblical reference. Yeah. To God, seven days to create it. But now it's the Genesis device. Wham! We can do it in seven seconds. So uh, Roddenberry then goes on to say, hey, it's not a bad first draft for a first-time writer on Star Trek. But we should uh, now, if we intend to use him again, sit down, straighten him out a few areas of logic, believability, and scientific extrapolation and action adventure and so on yeah see the the science and that kind of stuff is all good a lot of people seem to be complaining too cerebral yes too much talking about this not enough the fun action adventure of uh of what star trek seems to be in the 60s well i mean there's the, the i think there's like one sense that you know good tv has action and adventure in it and then in hindsight, we're like, you know, one of the reasons Star Trek stood out is because it was kind of cerebral. Yeah. So after that last note, uh, Robert Justman comes back to say, uh, I think Gene is being a little bit too kind. This is a bad first draft for a first time writer on Star Trek. I find myself so overwhelmed by this teleplay that I am unable to come to grips with it professionally. We are deficient in the area of story, logic, believability, dialogue, characterizations, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. Good luck. 
Robert Justin in there, always good with like a few zingers now and then. DC Fontana even goes on to follow up uh, what Justin says by saying, this script in general is too slowly paced. Everyone talks, there's no action. I recommend deep cuts in the dialogue and revamp the action structure. Do not wait to do the restructuring after the second draft as we've been forced to do in the past. If we remember, uh, Operation Annihilate was one of those. Um, uh, the Way of the Spores becoming the side of Paradise. You know, uh, obviously what DC does to that script was amazing. But, you know, she says, hey, can we just get this by draft two this time as opposed to waiting for one more draft that none of us uh, really like. Uh, Justin gives out a couple of his usual notes that uh, end up helping out the final draft. One of the big ones is, can we not make it a probe? Can we just make it the the, the machine? It, the probe is the machine. Can we just do that? I think that would make it a lot of, a little more clear. <laughs> he also goes on to make a couple of jokes about Wally Cox coming in to do the whistling for the yeoman, which is really funny. He's like, can we dress her in a, in a blonde wig or dress him in a blonde wig or not? He's the best, most professional uh, whistler out there. Kuhn, who likes Lucas at this point, says, uh, this is a splendid draft. Splendid draft. Uh, one of the better ones from a writer who has not done a script from us before. However, the compliment then goes on to give uh, 15 pages of single-spaced critical notes. So... Kuhn told Lucas that Scotty's death and Barbara's brain damage were uh, not an, or brain draining were not enough. He wanted to add another threat, suggesting that Nomad and improve the Enterprise engines, resulting in a near explosion. Also, uh, have Nomad killing other crew members, helping build you know the tension and the uh, threats in this episode. Two weeks later, at the end of April, Lucas sends in his uh, second draft. Uh, which then, out of nowhere, Kuhn decides we're going to make this the first uh, yellow yellow cover first draft. So, uh, of course, it's at this point. So they're also then when uh, Scotty in this draft, uh, when Scotty is killed, uh, they find his brain case is smashed like an eggshell. That's nice, right? Exactly. Can't and, show that uh, on TV. After Nomad repairs the Scott unit in sickbay, Kurt tells this dangerous machine to go back to the bridge and wait. And this keeps happening in this drip in this draft where, yeah, let's bring him to the bridge. And then and then, you know, we're gonna go uh, talk talk in the briefing room. So then they go down and talk to the briefing room, and then suddenly like they get a call like, hey, something's happened on the bridge with Nomad, and then they run back up in Nomad, and then they're like, Okay, Nomad, don't you do it again. You go wait for us on the bridge. <laughs> so like that happens three or four different times in this draft where Obviously, everybody reading this is like, we're going to need to change up some stuff in this episode because it's crazy. Why does this keep happening? And even as they get into Act 4, Kirk and the officers are still carrying on the debate as to whether or not Nomad should be destroyed. Kirk berates them, saying, uh, my entire staff is falling flat on their faces. You're like savages bowing before idols. Mr. Scott, you want its power. Dr. McCoy, you want its ability to heal. You're all forgetting the fact that this is... Uh, it's incompatible with biological life. <coughs> Sorry, I don't know why I'm falling apart all of a sudden. Wait, you are an imperfect being? Apparently. Oh, no. Exterminate, exterminate. Wrong franchise. Wrong, wrong franchise, definitely. Roddenberry comes in, uh, hands off some more, uh, you know, important stuff. He doesn't want 
the ship to just or the probe to just developed its new programming by itself. He thinks collision with some kind of alien probe is the better way to go. That way we don't have any uh, confusion as to uh, where this idea come from came from that it wasn't just an accidental human mistake, you know, in the programming of the probe. Did, did you hear about, so there's a story from, it's, it's several months old now, and they had set two computers and they were supposed to c communicate with each other, right? Okay. And they developed their own language. And at I some did hear point, about that. At some they had to shut it down. Yeah, they were like, we don't know what they're talking about. Shut them down. <laughs> Yep. Whoops. Yeah. So one can one can imagine this kind of stuff. There was also one where it was they were like trying to design a more realistic Twitter bot or something like that, and it uh, just started insulting people. <laughs> it became really hostile. Well, it just was. It was probably like picking up everything else that it had read in right, uh, yeah, yeah. Twitter. Exactly. That's what it was doing. He was picking up the negativity and just reflecting it back. They're like, well, we got to shut this down, too. That's so funny. Another thing, too, that Roddenberry brings into this is, uh, can we use Nurse Chapel instead of Barbara in the whistling sequence? Wouldn't that be better? Then we, I would prefer to have a continuing character here. We can find a way to avoid her brain being washed clear of all intelligence. Coon and Fontana decided, eh, maybe we should make that Ohura. That sounds that sounds make more sense. And instead of whistling, let's have her sing the song that she sang way back in Conscience of the King. But this also did obviously create the idea of them bringing in Christine to help Uhura read through uh, all the spot run. education. Yeah, educational banks. You do increase the drama a little bit when you have a regular character get hurt. Right, exactly. To... Some nobody. Yeah, I don't You're know. Like, I don't care. They could die. Yeah, so like there's a there's a cartoon where uh, I think you may have posted it for all I recall, but like uh, you have the three, the trio, and like some guy in a red shirt gets selected. You, eh. so no, there's no real talking. It's all like, eh, eh. and they beam down, and then like you just like a, the red shirt is off. He's like off the cliff, and he falls. Uh -huh. So the other three start walking, and then, like, they beam down on the red shirt, and he, he gets struck by lightning, and they walk a little further, and the meteor hits him, and they walk a little further, and another red shirt beams down, and, you know, something bad happens to him, and then they, like, beam down a really old red shirt, and he just dies. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, but there's this idea of, like, I mean, part of the idea of the red shirt is that they introduce inconsequential characters who've never met, and they die, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas when mm -hmm. instead you have an Ahura who gets, or a McCoy from uh, the Paradise Syndrome thing with the, not that one, the uh, one with the playground, with the robots, he stands in front of the night. When you bring out a main character and you have them appear to be dead, and then, like, recover. There's more emotional impact. I mean, you could eventually develop the crazy trope where, like, nobody ever dies on this show. Or they die and then they come back, right? Which yeah. leads to its own kinds of problems. So, uh, of course, uh, Roddenberry, you know, send out all these critiques, and then uh, the letter goes out to um, 
<clears throat> to Kuhn and to uh, Lucas as well, you know, basically saying, hey, great job. Here are the changes I want you to make, even though it's 15 pages or whatever. Um, so Justman then sends uh, a memo just to Kuhn and Roddenberry with his thoughts. Uh, most of which is, uh, my memo is going to be the shortest of all because it would take several 45-minute tapes for me to get down everything I object to in this teleplay. Therefore, I shall only hit certain major items. The two areas in which I agree with Mr. Roddenberry are as follows. Gene makes the statement that this is better than the average first start by the first writer on the show. Oh, I disagree strongly. I feel that there was a very good idea originally here contained in this teleplay, but it's not been handled well at all. I think that this script is... A Atrocious. It's slow, boring, unbelievable, replete with papier-mâché characterizations and illogical calculations. The other area in which I feel Mr. Rodberry is mistaken is where he says the it is obvious that the writer has studied his Star Trek guide considerably. It was not evident to me at all. If he had studied it considerably, he hasn't absorbed it very much. And in fact, Gene gives the lie to his own statement, thereupon turning out page after page of objections to the script uh, having been written, which are therefore obviously at odds with the Star Trek guide. Knowing Mr. Roddenberry, like I do, I can only assume that the reason why he said these two things in this memo that I object to is that he probably expected the writer of this teleplay would be reading his memo, and Gene, as always, doesn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. So obviously, Justin never liked this script from the beginning. So of course, who do they handle to? DC Fontana. DC Fontana, exactly. Dorothy Fontana is just as highly critical, but with a bit more tact. She says, the script still seems to be like a great deal of talk and very little action. I never believed the, that cloud thing in Kirk's projection, and I still don't believe it. And if Nomad cannot be reached in any radio frequency, then why should it respond to an image projection in a voice transmission on some unspecified frequency? So no flip of a coin was needed. Fontana was given the rewrite. Her vision, the final draft, was finished on May 29th. Uhura was now the brain drain victim. Pacing was faster, and characterization was now correct. It was also in this first version of the script that uh, James Dewan gets to read what happens to his character in this. Obviously, he gets to the end of Act 2 and is like, I'm dead. I'm dead. He flips. He keeps reading a couple more pages. And then he sees himself comes back, come back to life. And he says, oh, I didn't die. I was just a plot twist. <laughs> Robert Justman now is ecstatic over Fontana's rewrite. He says, I believe screen credit as indicated on the title page of this script on the front cover is incorrect. Shouldn't it be teleplay by John Meredith Lucas and DC Fontana, story by John Meredith Lucas? It's a very good rewrite by DC Fontana as usual. In comparing the various drafts as the uh, author, uh, Mark Cushman did in this book, he says it's fair to say that at least 50% of the dialogue in the filmed version of this episode came from Fontana. But as with Cat's Paw, DC refused acknowledgement. She said, generally speaking, a dialogue rewrite has a lot more, a lot of, uh, generally speaking, a dialogue rewrite was given on a lot more freelance scripts and not just on Star Trek's. The simple explanation is, is because uh, we were on the show all the time. We heard the dailies, the rough cuts, the final cups. We simply had more of an ear for the way our characters spoke than outside writers. Generally speaking, that kind of revision did not impact the original writer's credits. So that was nice of her to say that. 
So as we get into pre-production, Robert Justman says, uh, hey, can we just make this thing out of styrofoam? It'll make it easier. Uh, we don't want to see the string because the heavier the thing is, the more string we'll have to see in this uh, in this episode. We don't want to see the string, so let's make it out of styrofoam. But Roddenberry disagreed because he thought it should be uh, there should be more weight under it. You know, he goes, this is our uh, most important thing in this episode. He says, this is our guest role. <laughs> I know that it will cost something, and it will take a little, little time to have it glide around the vessel as we, as we do various things with it. But I think that you will agree with me that to do any less would be as bad as trusting an extra in a guest starring role. <laughs> so good thinking on his part. Director Mark Daniels says this, the changeling was another one that required a great deal of ingenuity. We had three different nomads mounted in three different ways. One on a wire to hover around the room, one on a dolly that need to be moved through corridors and under the bridge, and then one that we just attached to the floor. You couldn't take a wire through a doorway, for example. Vic Perron here, he uh, does the control voice in The Outer Limits. He was selected for the voice of Nomad. This is also the second time he was on the show because he played uh, Metron in Arena. Oh, hey, here's your note. Also on camera was director Mark Daniels, who posed to have his picture taken as Jackson Roy Kirk. Yeah. He wore Scotty's red dress uniform. Oh. Eddie Paskey sat at the Helms Navigational Station for this episode instead of his usual engineering post on the bridge. Uh, he wore gold this time instead of red. This was so that they could use stock footage of the main viewing screen. Uh, also, at the end of have a costume change, <laughs> right? Exactly. Uh, after production ended on day one, Arena was repeated on NBC. I forgot what the date was on this. I think it's interesting to talk about the date. Oh yeah, so filming began on July sixth. So here we are, you know, probably two months before the uh, date, and we're already filming. Uh, what what number uh, episode is this? Uh, like, um, live 39? Lost track. 37? I, We're in the high 30s. Number 11. Well, number 10. Season 2. Number 9? Number 8. Oh, my gosh. Hold on. Let me... Oh, it's number 37 overall. Well, that doesn't help. All right. One. Oh, I've got to count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay. So this is number 8. So it's interesting. Here we are filming, you know, episode eight at the beginning of July, and we still probably have two months before uh, the show goes on the air. Obviously, this ends up airing, I think, third or fourth. I think this one's I think this one's fourth the way it was aired, uh, mostly because there wasn't a lot of special effects to it. Although we have sometimes found that that doesn't matter. <laughs> Strangely, and of course, in the remake of the version. There's tons of special effects. Oh my gosh, way too many. I don't even want to do that movie because I just don't. Well, I mean, at least that's an easy 20 minutes to gloss over. Uh, they're looking at another thing, and now they're looking at another thing. <laughs> and that's another thing. It's a beautiful movie to watch. Sorry, now I'm getting back to whatever page I'm on. Uh... I'm drinking tea. It's delicious. Mm. 
And then on day seven of filming, which would be the next Friday, Daniels used a couple of hours in the morning to complete the unfinished briefing room scene from Thursday. And with his final cut, uh, filming completed on the Changeling, one one quarter day behind. By mid-morning, the company had moved on and started filming the next episode, which is called The Apple. On day eight, they had to go back and take some retakes uh, requiring the model of... uh, the changeling Wait, moving through some of the corridors. The next episode is the apple. Yes. What was the previous episode? Um, the wolf in the fold. Okay, so the wolf in the fold, totally different kind of episode. So here we have a, you know, a, a computer intelligence, right? Now they encounter okay. it in space. It it is. Super powerful, you know. They describe it as kind of godlike, right? They yeah. get they get ridiculous in the math of it, right? You yeah. know, ninety photon torpedoes. I, I'm afraid the Enterprise normally cannot withstand ninety photon torpedoes. Yeah, yeah. I was going to mention that when we got there. That's ridiculous. And it's ultimately defeated by a logic bomb. One of our better logic bombs, right? Yeah, I really like this one. I was describing it to Jamie earlier today, and she's like, well, that sounds fun. Yeah. And then in the next episode, we're going to have another computer intelligence. This one, like Landrew, masterminding a society. Now, in Landrew, he destroys it with a logic bomb, right? Yes. With this one, I think he just blows it up. An apple. But it feels like we, you know, we're we're kind of occupying the same space here. Kirk defeats yet yes. another computer, and we got another one coming up too, don't we? Do indeed. But back to back is a little tight. Yes. So the good news is, is that even with that extra half day of production, the cost of building the various nomads, and the money needed with all these optical effects, the changeling still came in under budget. The total price was $174,000, which equates to about $1.2 million in 2013. The savings of $5,300. Hey, okay, that's nice. We're saving a little money now. Reduces the season deficit to $116,871. So that's exciting. That's all I got as far as behind the scenes. As always, uh, let's, uh, let's get to it. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. So this uh, episode opens with another shot of the Enterprise flying through space. Uh, this is awesome opening music, too, which I had never heard before, but thought was really cool. Um, I just didn't remember. I can't say I'd never heard it before. And uh, again, we're in the middle of it, right? Whatever it is that's happening, we're suddenly like, oh, well, uh, we uh, have you heard anything since we got that distress call from the planet? And her is like, no, I haven't heard anything. So, so it's interesting because, and I understand why they do it as a teaser, like you understand why the trope of starting in the middle of the mystery, you know, helps the show a lot. But it's funny because I feel like this happened a lot less on The Next Generation, right? You know, in Next Generation, you find yourself like, well, today, Mr. Data and I decided we were going to go fencing on 1010 forward or, you know, whatever. Riker and Troy are on a date or, you know, whatever's happening. And then all of a sudden it's like, red alert! And then, you know, they rush to the bridge and then whatever happens, 
we're in the calm before the storm. And then all of a sudden we're in it by, you know, by the end of the next generation teaser. Right. But it's interesting because in the original series, we get much more of like, we're in the middle of it. We're looking for this thing. We're doing this thing. And rarely does it seem like it happens where suddenly, you know, oh, we were off doing this thing. And then suddenly this happens and blah, 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 blah. So that's interesting. Kirk and Spock are playing three-dimensional chess. Captain to the bridge. Well, right, there is exactly. the way you see, you know, even, yeah, so like even in, uh, uh, where no man has gone before. No, my favorite, the, uh, oh, balance of terror. Yeah. Balance of terror. So you start with a wedding, right? But then when you realize, no, they actually know what they're doing. They're like, cause they've, yeah. already, they've already been told that those things are being shot. You know, the bases, the, yep. Extra base are being blown up, and he's and he even tells him before the wedding. He even tells Spock to like, uh, "Hey, you know, keep your eye out, and if you see anything, uh, call me." Yeah. Yes, you really don't have this kind of. We were at our leisure. Yes. Like nothing of importance. When suddenly, <laughs> red alert. Right. Exactly. I, I had to pull my tunic. And to pull my tunic. <laughs> Spock tells Kirk, uh, no one will answer. He sees no life readings in this sector at all. Kirk says, four million people. <laughs> when I wrote it out, I wrote a dollar sign instead of the four. <laughs> I think I really wanted emphasis on that four billion. Hit the shift button. Spock postulates, but we don't really know what's going on. There are too many unknown variables. Although Spock never says that, which is interesting. He does speculate that even a disease at its worst would have taken more than a week to clear out 4 billion people. <laughs> then Sulu goes, sir, the shields popped on, which I, I didn't know they could do. That's neat. Oh, they totally, yeah. It just popped on. Hey, uh, something coming in at multi-warp speeds. Kirk says, full shields, Mr. Scat. Scott says, I'm giving her all that she got. He doesn't yell this one. This is just the cool and collected. I'm giving her all that she got. This uh, multi-warp thing hits the ship. People fall all over the place. The ship's being rocked. But meanwhile, Kirk's standing, holding steady between the two ships, or the, not two ships, but the two chairs, his chair and navigation. And that's it. We go to commercial. Oh, so I'm leaving myself a note here that basically says, like, because they could have just done, they could have done it with, like, Spock reading Don Quixote or something, trying to understand humans better or right. whatever, you know? And then we get the, uh, then we get the red alert of, oh, my gosh, this multi, you know, thing and blah, blah, blah. And then later in the episode, we find out that, you know, four billion people are missing from this, uh, from this sector. You could have done it that way. Anyway, we're back at it, back from commercial and opening credits. Uh, the, the amount of energy absorbed was the equivalent to 90 photon torpedoes uh, somehow. And hey, uh, because of that, shields are only are down 20%. So, whoo! It would take a lot of blasting back and forth. I mean, you know, like combat would take forever. But they'd run out of torpedoes, right? Yeah. Two ships would encounter each other. We fired, we fired again, we fired once more, we continued firing. Nothing down 0.01%. Down, well, you think of it like 20 divided, 
20% divided by 90? Be like five, five tenths of a percent or something like that. Four and a half tenths of a percent. That was way too many. Nine would have been fine. Why go to 90? Yeah. It's like they're, they're trying to dial. And this is, of course, the central problem of too many red shirts or characters who never die. They always get, you know, they, they seem to die, but then they get resurrected. Is you're right. trying to ramp up the drama too much, you know, by being 90 <laughs> photon torpedoes. We killed half the crew and then brought them all back to life. Except the ones you've never met, they're just all dead. Well, you know, we've run into this problem before, too, like in a muck time. No, it wasn't a muck time. It was, no, it was this side of paradise, actually, um, where we were talking about, you know, he, he says that Spock is like five times as strong as a normal right. man. You're like, it's just too much. <laughs> There's no way Kirk would ever survive if Spock yeah, was truly right. five times more powerful. Yeah, so like, I think a chimpanzee is like five times more powerful, or six, I think, is the official number in anthropology. And they can rip you limb from limb. Yeah. So that's kind of what should have happened if Spock was actually there. He, be like, he rips Kirk's arm out of his socket and beats him with it. <laughs> While he bleeds to death <laughs> on the ground. Ah! <laughs> and then goes, Jim! <laughs> I'm sorry! I let my Vulcan side take over. The anger. Another shot is on the way. Kirk admonishes uh, Sulu. Uh, why didn't you get out of the way? Uh, Scott, though, has taken it upon himself to uh, move the war power into the shields for extra coverage. Kirk then, uh, how asks is this thing flying at them? Equivalent to warp 15, sir. All right. You did the right thing, Scotty. You did the right thing. The bolt hits again. Oh, my gosh. The third time. This is like 270 photon torpedoes have now hit <laughs> the Enterprise. <laughs> Scott cannot find... Oh, go ahead. We meant micro-photon uh, torpedoes, the kind that might be carried in a mortar. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Spock cannot uh, find the source of the bad thing. Oh, but then he does. He tells Sulu to... Uh, Kirk tells Sulu to fire the torpedoes at it. And he does. And it explodes. Weird. Or does it? There seems to be no effect on the target. And it absorbed the energy. If it's shooting 90 at you, you can't shoot back with one or two. <laughs> we got one point to poke that torpedo and expect to stop it. Absorbed it, says Kirk. Your instruments must be faulty. And then Spock actually goes and checks. He's like, no, no, uh, this is all in working order. Everything, everything's fine. I don't think you know what you're talking about, Mr. Kirk. Uh, everything, uh, they're all in working at, order. At, oh, now, of course, in Next Generation, be a, I run a level two diagnostic. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's funny, though. That moment felt like a Sheldon moment to me. You know, it's, well, okay, I'll check them all, but I think they're still fine. Uh, and then the thing hits again. Boom! We can't survive another attack, says Scotty. Kirk opens a hailing frequency. He claims to be on a peaceful mission. We are, I'm Captain Kirk, he says. But now, instead of looking into the blue scanner, right, Scott is getting his information from Ahura's earpiece. He says, uh, it's, a meter it's a meter long and cylindrical. Scott asks, what kind of intelligent life could live in a thing that small? Spock reminds him, intelligence does not require bulk. It responds. 
but it sounds like a, a sped up tape deck or something, right? You see, kids, back in the day before CDs and MP3s, there were cassettes, and if you played them too fast, it sounded like chipmunks. Which is actually how they did the chipmunks. Yeah, exactly. Kirk says, uh, send it down to the analysis sector to uh, decode it. So now Spock is giving us the analysis from the earpiece again. So is he listening to the decode sector? Like, was he getting his information from like the scanning crew down on deck nine? Who was like, oh, well, we'll use the big dish on the front to scan for the, uh, and we'll feed you the information. I think that's what's happening again. It seems that way. I don't know why he's not using his blue thing, which he uses a lot later, but he's getting it all in his earpiece this time. It seems it's in binary. Uh, we're going to slow it down. But it seems that it's just repeating Kirk's message back to him. So Kirk tries another message. He requests its identity. They tie it into the ship's translator. But then that overloads and burns out. But that was all the thing needed. It responds. His mission, too, apparently, is non-hostile. That's what it said. Nomad asks to beam aboard his ship. Uh, but Kirk says the size isn't going to work out there. So why don't you beam aboard our ships? Nomad, as I'll call him from now on, says, uh, yeah, good. We'll do that. That sounds like a plan. Kirk calls for his A-team. Bones, you know, in case it's biological and needs help. Uh, Scott, I guess, if it's not. And uh, Spock there for his keen Vulcan analysis. They beam it aboard. But it's not biological at all. It's a robot! I mean, it's not really a robot. But I was thinking, like, what would people in the 60s be thinking right then, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's got to be some kind of robot they're beaming aboard. Crazy. I mean, look at its shape, right? It looks like a humanoid. It looks like it's got, like, a pointed stocking cap on or something, you know? And I and my kerchief. We're back at it. Spock tries to scan it, but it has uh, protective screens. Nomad says, relate your point of origin. Kirk says, we are part of the United Federation of Planets. That is not a right answer. That's not really what he says, but close enough. Kirk says, uh, uh, wow. I, I st Kirk still thinks it's that it's a ship. Right. But Bones has already figured it out. He's like, that's not a ship. And Nomad then tells us himself. He says, I have no paras parasitical beings. I am Nomad. Kirk says, out of his memory somewhere, remembers, wasn't there a probe launched in the early 2000s? I thought that was destroyed. Uh, Spock says, well, it was thought to be destroyed. Uh, there were no other nomads sent out, which is funny then that Kirk could even remember that there was a single probe in the 2000s that was sent. Kirk has all this information at his fingertips all the time. He does. He's a handy guy. Yeah. Nomad then asks for the star charts. So uh, we can see what planet uh, they are from. Nomad also shows us, too, that he can move. And he floats down off the transporter and to the door where uh, Kirk tells them, uh, hey, follow me. I need, I'm going to need your help. So the triumvirate, Bone, Spock, Kirk, make their way. So I was trying to look for a, a cool thing to call this. Like, where are we going to go that he's, where he's going to show them um, a star, you know, the star map? Right, I was trying to think of the like, what's the cool name? I know there's a name for it, like a next generation name to use. So I, I looked up like astro cartography because I thought astro cartography, like map cartography, that made sense to me. But no, 
Because astrocartography is actually where you use astrology to determine whether or not where you should move or where you should travel to. In uh, in next generation, it's it's astrometrics. Oh, yeah. astrometrics. Well, I came up with it in my head. I finally realized stellar cartography. There you go. It's, yeah, uh, that's it. I, that's what it is. Okay, stellar cartography. That, that that was the one that made sense to me. I was like, it's okay. All episode well. where, where Picard falls in love with the the woman. He's like can't sleep for like an episode. Oh, uh huh. He is he has episodic insomnia. <laughs> And he meets this girl who's working in stellar cartography, and they like they drink tea together at night. And... Well, I know they use stellar cartography a few times in the movie. It's really yeah. super cool the way it like zooms around them and stuff. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, That's you walk in, and then there's this guy here, Singh, right? Who uh, I, I don't know what's up. We've seen this uniform before, but I've never mentioned it. What's up with this uniform this guy's wearing? It's like he's got a black shirt on underneath, but it's like a red, like his shirt's open, like like he's a yeah. 70s disco star or something. I don't know uh, what's up with that uniform. I, I think he's meant to be like a technician. Yeah, that's who seems to wear it. It's like those guys. It's like the guys who go to fix stuff. Yeah. Because they're either wearing that or the smock. That's the other thing that they wear. The Spock smock. Yeah. Anyway, uh... Nomad then realizes that they're from Earth, as Kirk uh, describes where they're from. He then decides that Kirk then must be the creator. The, st the sterilization routine was unnecessary, to which Kirk responds, what sterilization procedure? But Nomad basically says, uh, well, you ought to know, you created me. And then in a bit of like nice deduction here, uh, McCoy says, uh, well, I'm not the creator. Why don't you tell me your function? To which Nomad then asks Kirk, uh, is he one of your units? Kirk, almost laughing, says, uh, yes. Nomad says, he acts unrationally. To which Kirk says, uh, sometimes, but why don't you go ahead and tell him anyway, please? Nomad. Nomad says his job is to probe for biological infestations and destroy that which is not perfect. Even Spock can't believe it. He goes into the history books to see what Nomad was really programmed for. Kirk asks Nomad, why do you call me your creator? Nomad then asks, is the usage wrong? Kirk is about to say yes when Spock steps in and says, nope, 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 you're right. No, everything's cool. He's the, he's the creator, all right. Just testing your memory, man. Just checking. Nomad then, well, there was a lot of damage done in the accident. The accident. Hmm. The accidente. Kirk then tells Singh, uh, uh, hey, will you please take care of any of Nomad's needs? And Singh's like, what? What am I doing? Yeah. Then How does this the work? Tri Go ahead. Yeah, right, exactly. How's this work? The triumvirate leaves. The three then basically uh, tell us that Nomad was thought to be destroyed by an asteroid. But Spock now suspects it must have survived. I mean, obviously. Back in what I thought was stellar cartography, Singh begins begins to get way more curious about this thing than I would. He gets like super close. Again, I'm well versed in this drama, so I would stay away from anything I didn't understand, but that's just me. And then all of a sudden, as he gets close, this light shines on the top of its head. Singh asks it a question, but it does not answer. Suddenly, Uhura calls down. 
And we find out that it's not stellar cartography at all, but it's the auxiliary control room. Singh tells Ahura, hey, uh, hold on a minute. I got to take this reading and then I'll give it to you. So while she's waiting, Ahura decides she's going to sing. Nomad hears that, this. Because that's what you do, them. right? Yeah. Well, that's what you do. I don't know how many times I've locked on and you're like, do to do, singing in the rain. That's right. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. So Ahura's just singing a. Old Sing here, and Nomad just leaves. In the briefing room, then, the Triumvirate uh, find out more about Nomad's creator. And what's his name? Roy Kirk. Jackson Roy Kirk, that's right. And Nomad thinks that Kirk is Roy Kirk. Close enough. Spock also says it mentioned the other. There was another involved. It's searching out perfect life, which means we will soon be destroyed. Back on the bridge, we see Nomad come onto the bridge, seeking Uhura, who he then finds. What is this form of communication? It asks. She says, the singing? What is its purpose? I don't know, she says. I felt like music. What is music? At which point then I give up. I'm like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Look in the databanks for music. I don't know how to describe music. I, I have but, to imagine, though, that... Uh communications expert would have a technical answer. She would be well, like, that's probably true, yes. I, I don't know how to say that. It'd be like, uh, singing is a melodic form of blah, blah, blah. And you'd be like, okay, why do you do it? I mean, it, like, he should get hung up on the why. Yeah. Not that what she, is should, it? she shouldn't get hung up on the, I, I don't know how to describe it. It seems perfectly mad. Like, because that's what would happen if you bumped into someone in the grocery store singing, going, what is this form of communication? They'd be like, excuse me? <laughs> I don't understand. But you, right? if, if you bumped into, a, like, an opera singer and go, what is this form of communication? She'd be like, well, I'm singing a libretto. And a libretto is, a, you know, this particular form of, of an opera. What is music? Music is, you know, this kind of notation in which, uh, you know, anyway. Yeah. They would have a technical answer. Probably true. But Nomad, instead of uh, scanning the database for what music is, decides he's going to scan Uhura's brain. What? Scotty she must tries know. She's holding out on him. So Scotty tries to stop Nomad, but Nomad zaps him. Scotty, again, just like, uh, just like when he was rushing Apollo, rushes in foolishly. Who's rushing? That's right. When they say NFL players... And they say NFL players get too many concussions, but man, this guy Scotty gets, yeah. uh, gets a few. But oh no, it he doesn't so, just have a concussion. It is so bad that occasionally you have to take him to a pleasure planet for, so he can recover. And hope he doesn't accidentally <laughs> kill anybody while he's there. <laughs> Things happen. So, uh, but he does, does he? He doesn't just have a concussion. No. Kirk sends Bones over to examine Scotty. He's dead, Jim. <laughs> he said it. He said it. He said he's dead, Jim. Commercial! Back at it. Oh, what's well, also... Oh, I'm sure, Before we go to commercial, though, what's really great is that as we're fading to black, they pan in on Kirk, and he's, like, just seething, you know? He's like... Yeah. <sighs> he's pissed. Back at it. 
Kirk scolds Nomad for uh, killing his chief engineer. He then turns to Uhura, who looks out of it, and he sends her to sickbay. What did you do to her? He says. Nomad says her thinking was disjointed and chaotic. Absorbing it unsettled me, he says. Now even Scott is pissed. He's like, that unit is a woman, says Spock. A mass of conflicting impulses. To which I thought, like, was the perfect setup for, like, an 80s comedian, you know, mm -hmm. about women in general. A mass of conflicting impulses. <laughs> you don't know the half of it. <laughs> a mass of conflicting impulses. Hey, that one's not even my wife. <laughs> a mass of conflicting impulses. It's true, but that's why we love them so much. As I was saying, the perfect setup for comedians from the 1960s. I would never say such things. My wife would kill me. Anyway, uh, they take Scotty down below, whatever that means. Yeah, like, a, like they're a, a frigate, right? A tri-deck ship with 62 cannons or something. Bring them below decks. Let the doctor look at him. Exactly. Down below, it just means anywhere lower than the bridge. Yeah, it's a kind of a useless term. We, we brought him to the shuffleboard court. I mean, they could have just said take him to sickbay, which is where he's going to end up anyway. Uh, hey. Nomad then asks, will you, re will you affect repairs on the Scotty unit? His biological... Uh, Kirk then says, his biological functions cease to exist. He's no more. He has ceased to be. He has expired and gone to meet his maker. It's a I stiff... He's rest just, of life at rest in peace. He's Sorry. He's just tired. He's just pining for right. the fjords. That's right. If you hadn't gone and zapped him, he'd be pushing up the daisies. <laughs> Run down the curtain and join the bleeding choir invisible. <laughs> this is an axe, Scotty. He's just resting. All right, then if I'm wasting, I'll wake up. Hello, Scotty! <laughs> he just tuckered out. That's so, a big bout uh, of engineering. He's got to rest. So uh, Nomad says uh, he can fix Scotty. Bone says, well, there's nothing I can do. So uh, Nomad then says, uh, I need like a, uh, a plan. I need to see the plans for the unit. So Scotty... Uh, uh, Spock and Bones hook him up with a, you know, a diagram of what the inside of a human looks like and what the brain looks like. As uh, Nomad floats over to the computer to see the intricacies of the humor, uh, of the human at this point, uh, you can actually, this is the one time in the whole show you can see the string. Again, it's the remastered. But, you know, it's remastered. So why didn't they just fix it? Why didn't they just blob it out a little bit or something? The only time I saw the string, though, which so kudos to them. Nomad says that the intricacies of the human are insufficient. But Kirk says, it serves me as it is. Nomad then follows Bones down to sickbay. We kind of get that, like, steady cam shot out there. Chappelle. Chappelle. <laughs> Chapel stands by as Nomad works. 
Notice he's working without cutting Scotty open somehow. Anyway, Scotty comes back to life. What about her? As they walk into the next room, Uhura sits in the next room, completely spaced. She looks like a Barbie doll there or something. Like her makeup just looked like scary or fake or something. Anyway, hey, Nomad says... In a Barbie world. Exactly. Nomad says, it's not possible. Kirk asks why. Her knowledge was taken from her. Spock suggests that maybe she, she could be re-educated. So it's funny because even in the, like, what, two days that pass in this episode, she gets to a college level. Like, that's pretty impressive. She learned words, goes all the way to college level. Well, so they, it, they must imagine that, like, the structure of the brain is still there. It's just like the knowledge was removed. So it's not like she's got to, you know, like, reassemble a dog fits into category animal. An animal fits into category of life form. She's got all that. She yeah. just needs to, like, what is that? Dog. Oh, it's like, it's like a kind of amnesia almost. So, uh, well, also she knows Swahili, right? She starts to speak it. She, she says like three or four words in Swahili. Yeah, she's like, no, no, we have to learn English. Yeah, so she knows language. So I guess she knows what words are. Universal translator won't work if you speak that way. <laughs> yeah, apparently. So also during this episode, a little behind the scenes funny thing here. Michelle Nich Nichols uh, frequently tells a story of getting into a dispute in this episode with Mark Daniels. Uh, it's already been set up, of course, that her native language is Swahili. Right. But however, as uh, as she starts to come back, her, or, uh, Nichelle Nichols is like, well, shouldn't she speak Swahili? It's like her native tongue. It's where, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but Mark Daniels was like, do you, do you know anything in Swahili? And Nichelle Nichols is like, well, uh, no. He's like, okay, well, great. Then we're kind of at a loss because once you just speak English then and we'll just move on with the day. But eventually she stood her ground so much that uh, they called Gene Roddenberry and eventually Gene Roddenberry was like, yeah, she should probably speak Swahili. So they had to bring in a linguist then to teach her a few lines of Swahili so that uh, this episode could continue. Anyway, back to it. Uh, Kirk sends... Uh, his top security sends Nomad to his top security brig with a couple of security guys there to watch the door. Spock tries to scan it again, but again, its screens are impossible to get through, so he sends for Kirk. Kirk then orders Nomad, hey, lower your screens. Nomad says of Spock, this unit is well ordered. And Spock looks at Kirk with his arms folded like, yeah. oh yeah, I keep telling you, keep telling you. I'm, I'm satisfying the robots. Kirk tells Nomad, uh, now just follow his orders. So then back in sickbay, this is the scene where we got Uhura learning English with Chapel, and she uh, instinctively knows Swahili. Chapel comes out to talk to McCoy and is like, yeah, no, she's doing great so far. She's up to, you know, grade four. Can we re-educate her? Well, that's up to us, says Bones. Back in the uh, brig... Spock can find nothing useful in his scans and suggests, uh, hey, let's, uh, I'll do the mind probe, the Vulcan mind probe. Which is funny because he's doing the Vulcan mind probe on a probe. Huh? 
Anyway, uh, Kirk so, worries that he'll lose that, his mind like Uhura. Does that mean that uh, that he could do a a Vulcan mind meld with like a patty meld or a cheese sandwich? Well, funny you bring that up because at this point we've only seen a Vulcan uh, a Vulcan mind meld on living creatures. We saw it on the Horda. You know, we saw him do it on another human, but we've never seen him do it to a computer. Does this mean he could go to, like, the ship's computers and be like, I am now one with the ship's computer? Or you know, does it mean like, that, that no matter, uh, what is this, Mariner 6 or whatever we're calling this thing, that, yeah. uh, that it was alive? Had a consciousness. That's right. It was, it was capable of receiving telepathic communication, so it must have been alive. So uh, Kirk worries that he'll uh, lose his mind like Uhura. But Spock says, um, I've got a hypothesis. So I want to follow it to its conclusion. And I'm super disciplined. That's right. So he does the mind meld. And his fingers, it's fun. Because whenever he's doing a particular, this is a, a Leonard Nimoy thing. Whenever he's doing a particularly difficult mind meld, he moves his fingers a lot. Yeah. You can see him doing it in this one. Obviously, the best example of that is Star Trek Six when he's, God, what's her face up there? Uh, Kim Cattrall. Kim Cattrall, right? Whatever her name is. Not Valeris. <laughs> right. Uh, so he says things. I am Tanru. Tanru? What's Tanru? We don't know. Error. Rebirth. Much power. Sterilize imperfections. We are nomad. Sterilize imperfections. Sterilize imperfections again and again and again. He stops touching Nomad, but he's still saying it. Sterilize, sterilize, sterilize. Kirk grabs him, throws him out of the room, and tries to snap him out of it. Good Lord, man. Kirk tells Nomad to stop communication with Spock. And he does. And for a moment, Spock looks like he might not come out of it. But then he does. And he says, the knowledge, the depth. We find out that another probe is merged with Nomad, giving it a new power, new directives. The, other, the other's directive was to find and sterilize soil samples from other planets, and that the two just became garbled in Nomad's mind. He's able to figure that out. He's like, oh, look, here's the problem. He's like the super bug checker, right? Uh-huh. I totally found the area. It's in line uh, 340,012. It's right here. So uh, this is then when we get the two-second story about the changeling. It assumed it was a baby. It took the uh, form of a baby and pretended to be a baby, but it wasn't a baby. Kirk says, it's not infallible. It's space happy. It thinks. I'm his mother. Nomad then breaks his way out of the cell and uh, destroys the two guards that were covering it. He then enters engineering. He finds an inefficiency in the matter-antimatter -matter valve and fixes it. And other things, too. This is reasonable. We've gone to warp eight, Mr. Spock. Or, Mr. Scott. Scott says, use the dampers! Warp nine. Warp ten. It can't go that fast! It won't stop. Warp eleven! Engine efficiency has been increased by 57%. Kirk comes in and says, we can't. You got to slow down the ship. It'll destroy my ship. It's not meant to go that fast. 
Spock then enters and tells Kirk about the door to Nomad's cell and the guards. Nomad calls the biological units inefficient. So Kirk breaks protocol and tells Nomad, I'm a biological too. Even Spock is shocked by this revelation. No! Nomad doesn't believe it. And Kirk sends him back to his cell with two guards covering him. Nomad says he has much to reconsider before returning to the launch point. Spock tells Kirk, it may have been a bad idea telling Nomad he's a biological. Kirk says, I know, it was a stupid mistake. And now Spock... A rookie mistake. A rookie mistake. And now Spock is worried that Nomad will rethink his creator and that returning to Earth is probably a very bad thing. Carrying out its prime directive. Dun, 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 commercial. Back from commercial, Captain's Log 3541.9. The guards are following Nomad until he veers off into another corridor. They pull their phasers and says, uh, Nomad, you're going the wrong way. And Nomad, Nomad turns and deals with the guards quickly and painlessly. They are dead. One hopes. Then we get this fun shot of Nomad using the Jeffries tube. I thought that was fun. Bones then calls from sickbay. Spock and Kirk rush in to find Nomad. Kirk tells him to stop, but Nomad has stopped listening and saunters on in only a way a robot can. Spock yeah. and Kirk rush in and find Chapel on the floor. They find out Nomad has scanned Kirk's medical records, and Kirk realizes Nomad now knows that he is an imperfect as every other biological. <clears throat> then Scotty calls. Life support has been shut down. Oh boy, tensions mounting now. And Bones lets the audience know we don't have much time. Because we don't! Kirk tells Scotty to meet him in engineering with some anti-grabs. Kirk then rushes in to find two engineering guys knocked out but not killed? I don't know. Kirk tells Nomad to stop what he's doing and effect repairs on life support. Again, Nomad ignores him. So Kirk then starts to do it himself. But then Nomad tells Kirk to stop. What's going on here? The tables have turned. Kirk tells him that he must obey his creator. But now Nomad says he is programmed to destroy all life. That is imperfect. Nomad goes on to say that shutting down all the life support systems will kill all the imperfs, imperfects on board, but will keep the ship intact. What a clever robot. It too is imperfect, but can be adjusted, says Nomad, talking of the Enterprise. Kirk then says, biological units aren't perfect, huh? But an imperfect being created you. Nomad says, you are in error. I am perfect. You, being an imperfect being, are wrong. Whoops, sorry, that was Nomad who says that. Ah, let's try that again. You are in error. I am perfect. You, being an imperfect being, uh, you, being an imperfect being, are wrong. Kirk thinks it through, then says, am I the creator? And Nomad agrees. How could I have created such a perfect thing? Nomad stumped for a minute, says, answer unknown. I shall analyze insufficient data. 
Which is funny because I wondered if this was why Spock earlier in the episode didn't say insufficient data to uh, Kirk's query about what happened to all the four billion people. Right. But I am perfect because my programming is, I mean, duh. Nomad goes on to say, I will continue to sterilize that which is in error. Kirk restates this back to him. You will continue to sterilize that which is in error. There are no exceptions. Kirk now... <laughs> ah, he's got him! Right? Kirk knows he's won. I made an error in creating you. The creation of perfection is no error. I created error. I am nomad. Kirk then reveals he is not the creator. Jackson Roy Kirk was. You are an error. You did not figure out the error. That's twice. You have not correct corrected it. That's three errors. You are flawed and imperfect. Execute your prime directive. And Nomad starts to flip out. Error, error, which of course is one of the things I remember Dad saying all the time. Error. They throw the anti-grav units onto Nomad and then rush him down to the transporter room. Kirk gives it one last moment of bad self-esteem. You are an error. You must blow up. And then he sends it off into space. And then, almost sadly, Nomad explodes. And then... We're back on the bridge for our wrap-up. And then I actually IRL LOL'd. <laughs> the line was, Spock saying, My congratulations, Captain. A dazzling display of logic. Yeah, what, uh, you didn't think I had it in me, did you, Spock? No, sir. It was like another like perfect like Sheldon-like uh, comeback on that one. Bones then comes in to say that Ahura is now up to college level. They all uh, sit down and reminisce a little bit more. And then Kirk says, uh, you know, it's tough losing a son like that. It's not easy to lose a bright and promising son. My son. The doctor. And uh, right behind him, sitting at communications, is a platinum bomb. Uh, a platinum blonde who I suspect is uh, Majel Barrett. That would just be my thought, because the hair looks the same color and is curled the same way as well. But I never got any confirmation onto that either. So interesting thing about the... Uh, about the... Uh, ratings of this episode, that uh, during the first hour, it was almost too close to call. Um up a little bit obviously it lost to gomer pile because gomer pile has 45 percent of the share on tv but the other 29.25.9 percent went to both hondo and star trek in the first half <clears throat> isn't that crazy and that then in the second half hondo pulls it off just a little bit more But still, they're in second. They, you know, they're basically tied for second place on the Friday night in which this aired in, you know, November or wherever. So, uh, you know, again, we find out again that all these things of like it just wasn't pulling in the ratings was no help. Oh, here's another thing that was no help either. Oh, where's that? Hold on. <clears throat> oh, 
man, I thought it was right there. Give me one sec. I'm looking for an important thing. Mm, okay. So the number one network had bought ad space in TV Guide and other television periodicals there, right? For ABC or for uh, for uh, CBS there for Gomer Pyle, as did ABC for Honda for Hondo, but. NBC didn't spend a dime on any periodicals or TV guide for that week. And yet, somehow, Star Trek still pulls in second place on a Friday night. Explain that. You can't. Your logic is impeccable, sir. That's right. Well, that is all I got for this episode. Anything we need to talk about that you didn't get to? Yeah, I thought that was it. I thought it's a show about a great logic bomb defeating True. the computer. As we will see uh, a couple more times, indeed. Before the end of this series, we will definitely see um, see a couple more logic bombs and a couple more computers def defeated by that highly logical brain of Captain Kirk. All right. Yeah. So next week we got the Apple, which um, hey, I, I never even knew there was an episode called the Apple. So it shows you what I know about this, and I've seen one or two pictures from that episode, and it doesn't ring any bells for me at all so hey we'll get to see what we see next week won't that be fun indeed well that's it for this week my name is matt as always and from houston is my brother ken say goodbye ken good long and prosper ah there we go perfect and we will see everybody next week